Great. On September 15, 1978, three notable things happened. The Dodgers became the first major league team to draw 3 million fans. Muhammad Ali beat Leon Spinks in 15 rounds for the heavyweight boxing title. And the Nuclear Information Resource Service, or NEARS, was born. A brochure from that day in 1978 announcing the arrival of NEARS paints the, pictures, paints the picture of a mushrooming movement of grassroots activists intent on protecting their communities, asserting control over the decisions affecting their lives, and above all, putting an end to the nuclear option. Tonight we're going to celebrate those activists, those that are still fighting, and the organization that came into being for the sole purpose of supporting and building a formidable and well-informed national safe energy movement. Good evening again, and welcome to a very special call celebrating 40 years of no nuke activism. I'm Allison Fisher. I'm the Outreach Director for Public Citizens Climate and Energy Program, uh, formerly known as CMEP or the Critical Mass Energy Program. I'm a NEARS board member, and I'm very honored to be part of this call, this community, and this organization. So I wanted to share a little bit of my story um, or my humble anti-nuclear beginnings before I turn it over to the crew of professional badasses that we have assembled for tonight's call. Um, I participated in my first anti-nuclear march when I was 13 years old. I did not know the path I was on. Um, in the late 80s, an area close to where I grew up in western New York was to be sited for a large-scale, low-level radioactive waste dump. 5,000 people showed up at the first public meeting with the New York Siting Commission, um, or so I was told. I was not in attendance. Um, but I did later participate in a bump-the-dump march from my town to the site where over the course of a year, 128 protesters were arrested for blocking those scouting the proposed dump site. On April 6, 1990, then uh, Governor Mario Cuomo ordered the commission to suspend work to suspend all work at the site, and then the commissioners were never seen in the area again of victory. At that time, I, of course, um, had no idea about the organizing, the late meetings, the letter writing, the phone banks, the door-to-door -door canvassing that were behind that victory, and that NEARS, and specifically Diane DeRigo, had come to my community and surrounding communities to support the citizens on the front line of that site. Now, I wish I still had the Bump the Dump t-shirt I had made using one of my dad's old white t-shirts and the puffy neon paint that my mom bought for the occasion. What I do have is a picture of the poster my brother made for the march, which includes a man and a woman holding a baby wearing hazmat suits and reads the fashion of the 90s. And that picture hangs above uh, my desk in my office to this day. And I also have the knowledge that my community was not unique. Hundreds of communities across the country were in the same fight for their lives, and they were doing it armed with near stack sheets and reports and strategy and shoulder to shoulder with its fierce staff. I'm going to turn it over now to some of our most esteemed anti-nuclear warriors who are going to walk us through four decades of the resistance, information gathering and wielding, and the victories of this movement. We're going to hear from Harvey Wilderman of Solartopia first. Um, I'm just going to say I'm not going to do lengthy introductions. Um, 
for folks on this call, these folks probably don't need an introduction. Um, if you want to add more than what I say, please do, to do so. Um, Harvey will be followed by Michael Keaton of Coalition of the Nuclear Great Lakes in Don't Waste, Michigan. Then we're going to hear from the Mighty Deaf Cast of Citizens Awareness Network. And finally, the amazing and one of my heroes, Karen Hayden from Seed Coalition and No Nuclear Waste at Key. And then we've reserved a good amount of time to hear from other people on the call. Um, so we'll open it up for Q&A and also have it as just a space for people to share their own story, their own part of the nuclear movement. So with that, Harvey, I'm going to turn it over to you. Okay. Well, it's an honor to be on this call. I'm uh, in, in great, great company, and um, really, uh, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing moment in, uh, in our nuclear uh, campaigns. And we started, many, some, we, I actually started, uh, along with Deb uh, Katz, who's on the call, back in the early 70s, because I was living on a commune in the local uh, utility tried to build a nuclear plant four miles from our house, and we, in fact, stopped them and coined the phrase no nukes. And along that, in that era, we, uh, we got to meet Stanley Weiss and Helen Caldicott and Michael Marriott and uh, so many others of the great uh, stalwarts who became uh, the core of NEARS. And NEARS, of course, uh, has been uh, the, an essential element in the entire campaign against nuclear power. Uh, in 1974, uh, Richard Nixon announced there'd be a thousand nuclear reactors, commercial reactors, in the United States by the year 2000. The year 2000 has come and gone. In the year 2000, we had 104, and uh, now we're under 100. We've got 99, I believe. And um, Oyster Creek, I think the next one to go down is going to be shut uh, shortly. Uh, we are still in the campaign. There's, there's still a major piece of the uh, of the pie, especially in New York now, where Tim Judson and, and, um, and so many others are waging the good fight to get those four ridiculous reactors shut down uh, upstate, and then the two at Indian Point without the sub subsidies that uh, Governor Cuomo has so wrongly put in place. Uh, so uh, sort of the more things change, the more things stay the same. But with NEARS as a, uh, a bulwark uh, of this movement, we have, in fact, helped create a trillion-dollar uh, renewable energy industry. Uh, wind and solar are going to be the biggest uh, employers. Uh, I, I tell my classes there was a movie back not long before the formation of, of uh, NEARS called The Graduate, and the guy comes up to the young guy who's just graduated from college, played by Dustin Hoffman, and says one word, plastic. So I tell my uh, students now one word, photovoltaics. And that's been made possible by the work uh, that NEARS and so many others have done uh, over the years. So we're now facing major crises in shutting down uh, nuclear plants that should never have been built and now have operated way, way, way beyond um, their e even legal lifetime. Uh, they are more dangerous than ever, and NEARS is more essential than ever. So, uh, again, I'm honored to be on this call, and um, uh, anything else that, you want me to say, I'm happy to say, but I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, from your other people. Great, Harvey. Thank you. And now we're going to turn it to uh, Michael Keegan. Hello. I'm Michael Keegan from Monroe, Michigan, uh, just south of Detroit. And uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I got into this when I went to ask to go to a uh, county commissioner's meeting. Uh, they were about to approve the evacuation plan. 
but every question that citizens asked, uh, they lied to. They got a very bad response. So I kind of dug in. Um, then we brought uh, Dr. Mary Sinclair to Monroe for a lecture uh, in 1983, and she said, you've got to get in that documents room, and you've got to confront them with their own documentation. Well, all this time uh, since I, I got in, in about 1980, uh, we, we've been relying on NEAR's fact sheets, um, wonderful pieces of information that actually help us to do grassroots organizing and tabling and such, and to learn uh, what's well, a very difficult uh, subject matter. I'm most appreciative there. Um, in 1986, uh, I came into Washington for a, a flu in 7 a.m. I had to testify at 10 a.m. Um, and I brought in a, uh, a testimonial that I had typed, typed the night before on a hand uh, typewriter, looked like mess, all kinds of whiteouts. And Nears immediately rekeyed that, reformatted it, and made it a professional document. We ran off copies. Uh, nearest folks, Diane DiRigo, took me on over to the NRC headquarters where I gave a testimony, which um, nobody, nobody there, a room of 200 people, and nobody from the NRC could answer the questions. They were scheduled to uh, get their license back on the Fermi 2, and uh, nobody, and I said, well, you've got 20 open items, and is there anybody in this room can you address that? No, they couldn't. But this is the kind of support that NEARS helped to provide, the documentation, making the linkages to other groups, uh, linkages to the Union Concerned Scientist, uh, work with Bob Pollard, linkages to Public Citizen, um, uh, and so many others, Greenpeace as well. Um, Chernobyl occurred in, in uh, 1986, April, and uh, I'd been working on the Fermi plant in my home backyard uh, near Detroit, and we began to look up and down the lakes and realize it's not just enough to, to confront the nuclear plant in our backyard. We are in jeopardy from, uh, <clears throat> from every nuclear plant in the Great Lakes Basin. Um, and there were 70, 37 directly in the, in the water basin, but another 23 just outside the watershed. Um, so that nearly 60 plants would impact the Great Lakes Basin. So we organized the Coalition for Nuclear for Great Lakes, uh, several people from NEARS came in, provided professional workshops, and uh, through the years, every time we've got uh, put on a conference, we call on NEARS, uh, who sends out staffers, who helps to organize, get the word out. So that's been very wonderful. Um, in uh, 1988, uh, they started with, I think, BRC, Below Regulatory Concern, some attempts to do that, to get that. There was... Uh, the hosting of high-level, uh, I'm sorry, the hosting of uh, low-level radioactive waste sites for states were being asked. NEARS was instrumental in, in providing us the ammunition, the documentation that we needed to confront and to stop that. Um, in 1991, uh, NEARS helped to sponsor a conference on Chernobyl, a five-year anniversary conference. A public sitting was, was there. Ralph Nader was there. Scott Denman had a, a big hand in it. Um, and, and just wonderful folks at, at, at NEARS. Um, I relied on them for technical support, uh, uh, documentation, uh, connections, uh, what to do, when. Uh, so it, it was a wonderful thing, been a wonderful thing. Um, and then I learned that there was going to be a conference out in uh, Vermont, uh, an encampment, to learn about nukes in depth, and we were going to start a, a movement. So. I actually went on out to that. It was a wonderful uh, 
Choppers put on uh, by the New England folks. Uh, Deb Cat had a big hand in that. Um, so much appreciative of that. Um, I want to quote uh, Harry Chapin, who's actually quoting uh, Pete Seeger. And he says, uh, he asked Pete Seeger, you know, what, what do you feel that you've made an impact on, on social movements? And, and Pete was very humble. No, but he's not sure that he has made an impact. But he was sure that he had been working with people with the live minds, the live, live eyes, the live hearts, and that this had enriched his life tremendously. So uh, Pete Seeger's point is that irrespective of commitment, what commitment it is to what, you're working with those people who, who are, are watching. And so we've all become prisoners of, of conscience, and we can't turn away. Uh, I'm 38 years deep on this. I'd like to be able to set it aside, but um, we're starting to win so many places. And so we just got to be vigilant and continue with. Um, and I'd, I'd like to close with uh, the thought that uh, we are really changing the paradigm. The nuclear industry is, is hell-bent on getting to yes. Whatever it takes, they'll say yes and they'll approve it. Whereas we've been critics, we've had to methodically document everything. Well, in the process, we have created a scientific knowledge base, whereas the industry is relying on a dogmatic information base. There are now problems with <coughs> nuclear power, nuclear weapons, nuclear waste, which they cannot solve because they cannot tap their dogmatic information base. They now have to come to us because we have meticulously laid out a knowledge-based system. And so uh, we're winning. Uh, we just need to let it play out. Uh, it's an abolitionist movement, um, but everybody should hang on. And I am most appreciative to everybody that I've, I've worked with along the line. Uh, they have enriched my life tremendously and provided meaning for my life. So thank you to Nears, and keep on keeping on. Thank you, Michael Keegan. Um, those were great reflections, and I appreciate that. And we're going to um, come back. I have a couple of things I want to ask you about that kind of piqued my interest when you were talking. But we'll, we'll go to um, Deb Katz first, and then Karen, and then we'll, we're going to um, go into the Q&A portion of the call. Well, when TAN formed, NEARS helped provide really much-needed information as we struggled to understand the issues of reactor operations, embrittlement, radioactive releases, nuclear waste. We were all so ignorant, and they helped us educate not just ourselves but our community. After we shuttered Roe, we wanted to go home, to go back to our gardens and our lives and just not think about it anymore. Perhaps without local mothers and nears, we would have. Mothers with children with Down syndrome asked for our health, help to deal with the Massachusetts Department of Health. They felt that the department was ignoring the increases in disease in our community and the children with Down syndrome. So we began to investigate the standard releases into the Deerfield River that run through our valley. We really didn't know where to begin. And with Nears' help, we went through Yankee Rose records at our local library. It was a cumbersome process. Everything was on microfiche and difficult to understand. Nears gave us equations to use to figure out the releases. Early on, reports were done monthly rather than where they are half yearly, yearly. And I calculated that Roe released 1,300 cherries into the Deerfield River in one month. 
you got to understand, our children swim in that river. Farmland is adjacent to it, as are schools. I was shaking. I remember I left and I called near, called Paul Gunther. I couldn't believe I had done the calculations right. He confirmed it. I left the library and I wept. Understanding routine releases changed everything for CAN. Those releases caused an epidemic of disease in our community. We created a white paper on tritium and the effects of those releases that it had on us, and NEARS contributed research to that paper. It forced us to think about our position on contamination and cleanup. Our signs at demos had said dismantle row now because we had suffered from those releases, and we, but we didn't want the waste that had hurt our community to hurt anyone else. And this was a terrible step to take for us. Yankee was shipping its low-level waste to Barnwell, South Carolina, and we decided we had to organize a Caravan of Conscience tour to protest the shipments because it was unconscionable to us for us who had been hurt by waste to hurt others by waste. Nears helped us research Barnwell has put us in touch with organizers there and along transport routes. CAN held three caravan of conscience tours to Barnwell to alert transport communities as well as the waste community of the shipments that, that came after us. We had to protest the targeting of an African-American community. Barnwell was 46% African-American. This is environmental racism. The nuclear industry depends on targeting vulnerable communities, both reactor as well as projected dump communities. We realized how little we knew about nuclear power, its operation, its waste, its disposal when, when we began, and how little others knew as well. So Michael, Mary, and I began working on creating action camps to educate and engage anti-nuclear organizers to build a movement to shutter nukes and replace them with sustainable energy. We organized three camps in southern Vermont. Over 1,000 people participated. We held workshops, nonviolent training, and actions at Vermont Yankee. NEARS helped to enlist specialists in the field to do workshops in Nukes 101, Media 101, whatever was needed at the time. And we began to work on high-level nuclear waste with NEARS opposing Yucca Mountain, as well as the creation of parking lot dumps on Native American reservations in New Mexico and Utah. We held a caravan of conscience tours of the Skull Valley Goshoot Reservation, alerting transport communities. Again, NEARS helped us make connections with transport communities so we could hold press conferences, meet with groups, hold events, and have the support we needed for the trip. CAN organized with NEARS and public citizens and other groups a wagon train of mock high-level nuclear waste casts from different regions of the country. We actually had them built, and the state of Nevada paid for it, and we converged on Washington, D.C. to protest the legislation on Yucca Mountain. There's much more I can say about our partnership with, with NEARS. What NEARS did was help make our work vital and consequential. It altered our lives. It maybe made us better people. Thank you. Thank you, Deb. And I, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, I, I wanted to add on to that a little bit. I, I think we can't overestimate this, this process of demystification of nuclear power. 
Um, it was something that I encountered you know, almost a decade ago when I started at Public Citizen and I thought, how am I going to do this work? I don't know anything about nuclear power. I don't know anything about the agency that oversees it. And of course, the first two people that I met with um, that my boss had me meet with was Michael Marriott and Paul Gunter. <laughs> and I immediately was put at ease um, having these two encyclopedias at my, at my disposal. Um, but this, this idea that you have a whole organization in collaboration with people in the field over decades, over time, like demystifying this agency of how it works. Um, now people that have been in this movement for a long time go to the NRC, they know people by name, they know how things work, they know, you know, where to find stuff, they know who to talk to. Um, and same thing with the technology, the, the wealth of information that, that people have have built collaboratively to know and be able to disseminate is amazing. It strengthens the movement. It makes organizing and activism and winning possible um, because the one thing the industry wants is for us to not understand. And that is just the essential piece I think that NEARS brings to the movement and everybody else that has contributed, of course. So with that, I'm going to turn it to Karen. Um, and Karen, you're going to be our um, wrap up here and then we're going to open up the line to other folks and I might have some additional questions to, to ask you guys as well. Great. This is Karen Haddon with Seed Coalition and we're here in Texas and NEARS has been such a valuable partner to us from day one and, and throughout several decades now. There's been three major issues that um, we've been through and NEARS has been there every inch of the way, and I don't know if we could have done it without him. Um, we had a fight against Sierra Blanca nuclear waste dump. This started in 1991, and Diane DeRigo was very, very instrumental. Uh, she came to Texas. She spent a lot of time. She helped people learn how to organize. She helped develop fact sheets and, and really was a key player in, in helping us learn how to fight against this radioactive waste proposal. Before it was over, there were several times when people even came from Mexico, at one time 500 school children, another time 700 people um, in Sierra Blanca all signed petitions, and then governors weighed in from, um, New Me from Mexico and came to uh, the governor's office here in um, Texas. Uh, where no one could speak Spanish and no one would receive them. It was an amazing, um, uh, a horrendous exchange. And um, the ongoing political pressure that built up made it to where that site never did open. It was a uh, force to cancel. And after that, unfortunately, an alternate site did develop, uh, which was in Andrews County, owned by waste control specialists. And they started out with hazardous waste, and then they went to low-level radioactive waste. And today they're trying to get high-level radioactive waste. I'll come back to that. Um, so that's how we began working with Diane, Dorigo, and Mears. And um, they were there every inch of the way as a really important ally and would connect us to people and resources. Um, then we had um, a battle against two new nuclear reactors proposed for each of two sites here um, at South Texas Project and Comanche Peak. And again, we had NEARS as a resource as we went through that struggle 
and we were incredibly grateful. We could call up, we could get answers to questions, we could get the fact sheets and, and learn who to contact when we needed more information. Um, we were successful in that site. Um, one of the sites got licensed, but it was years after they had begun. And at that time, it became clear that it was way too expensive. And we had been busy uh, building the wind and solar uh, industries in Texas, which are booming. And it became clear that no one needed more nuclear reactors. Now we're dealing with the waste issue. Um, both New Mexico and Texas have proposed high-level radioactive waste disposal sites and active applications with the NRC at this moment. In fact, on Friday, the legal um, contention deadline will wrap up for New Mexico, and right now Texas, with waste control specialists, has a deadline for the end of October, the 29th. Um, again, NEARS is a partner that we couldn't, we couldn't do it without them. Um, and again, they've played an important role in connecting people in helping with national um, gatherings, uh, symposiums, and also when we were having statewide organizing, NEARS organizers came out, uh, Diane DeRigo in particular, and all of the people at NEARS have been incredible. We've worked mostly with Diane, but Tim Judson has been very effective and powerful at the helm, and we're glad that he came in. It was a hard job to take over for Michael Marriott, who was an amazing person, but Tim is doing an incredible job, and we're so grateful. And Mary Olson is a, is a resource as well, um, so knowledgeable and so easy to work with. And the organization is hosting ongoing conference calls that keep people connected. We learn from each other, and we build, and we, and we have moral support um, and a sense of camaraderie, which we really need because these um, struggles are quite hard. The environmental justice issue is big for us. It was first raised in the Sierra Blanca fight, and um, Senator Paul Wellstone at that time um, claims to have made the first environmental justice speech about Sierra Blanca on the floor of the U.S. Senate. And we got to know him through Nears Connections and through Diane Drago. And we uh, had 12 people go to D.C. Um, and, and stay for about a week to try to lobby up there. So these ongoing issues um, are really important to us. Um, here in Texas and New Mexico, no one wants to take the nation's entire high-level radioactive waste. And we're very concerned that not only is it bad for those of us at Ground Zero, but it's also incredibly dangerous to transport this waste across the country, to risk the waterways and the health of people throughout the country, the security risks, and the fact that none of the sites have robust enough storage. We think that where we ought to start is by making the systems uh, much better where they are um, before anything happens. And again, we can't thank NEARS enough. Um, they've been such a, an amazing partner um, that it's even hard to describe. And it has changed our lives, and we're grateful for it. Thank you, Karen. Um, we're about at 8.30. We have a whole hour for, for discussion, for, for Q&A, and, and for folks to share stories. Um, I just want to ask a, a question to everyone. Um, 
one of the things I was reflecting on as I was thinking about um, my little bit of the story and thinking about all of the things that, that went on behind the scenes that got, you know, somebody like a 13-year-old girl to attend a, a mar- an anti-nuclear march, you know, the meetings, um, who reached out to my mom, who knocked on our door, all of those things. It made me think about um, the fact that I became an organizer in the age of the Internet <laughs> and cell phones. And, you know, I haven't personally canvassed or, or had to think about how do I get information into people's hands. It's kind of um, a no-brainer at this point. So I'm just wondering, for, for you folks, um, all of you kind of span that, that age between organizing without the Internet and without cell phones and using landlines and all of those things and you know, coming into a space where now we have access to those things. And can you just reflect on kind of, I mean, there's some obvious differences, but can you kind of reflect on what, what it feels like to organize um, before the Internet and what it feels like now? Um, is there more efficacy? Is there more um, personal relationships? You know, what are, what are the types of things that you're experiencing? And maybe we'll just go in order, Harvey, if you can maybe share something, and then Michael followed by Dad, and then Karen. Uh, well, since I can barely operate my uh, iPhone, um, <laughs> I mean, the, only, the only way I survive is by having daughters who can tell me what to do. Um, so you're so old school. Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> that's because I'm so old. But, um, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a somewhat different world, but on the other hand, we find that, that people who run for Congress who go door-to-door uh, actually do, do very well. I think one of the um, downfalls of the uh, Clinton campaign in 2016 was relying on email and uh, not going, doing the door-to-door work. And mm-hmm. I think our anti-nuclear movement um, is the same way. In the long term, <clears throat> the gold standard for political organizing is, is going door-to-door. And I'm not sure that's the way it changed. Yeah, that's one of the things I was I was kind of hinting at. I, I feel like the the personal relationships of being kind of forced to be in the room with somebody, <laughs> you know, and meeting with people one on one is is so different now. We get so isolated, I think, from from the people that we're trying to talk to and people we're trying to work with. Yeah, it's a big problem, and um, uh, you know, since I really can't operate Facebook or uh, Twitter or those other things. Uh, you know, I still do talk to people, and that's still where we got to go. Yeah. Michael, did you yeah. have um, – yeah. Well, uh, Michael Keegan, did you want me to respond? <clears throat> yeah, please. Okay. Well, I'm uh, pretty much doing email. Uh, uh, just uh, I've got about ten different lists that I uh, – working groups that I help to operate and keep going. Um, uh, so a lot, of, a lot of what I'm doing is administrative these days. Uh, um, I I rely on the phone to call people that I've been working with forever. Um, I'm short on legs. I don't 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 get out much to do uh, to, to do other venues. Um, but I try to empower and put the tools in people's hands who can do that. Um, and uh, I stay off face crook as much as I can. Um, uh, but it, it's a, t- a tool that that uh, other folks are using with with good success. Um, uh, whatever it takes, we need to do it. Uh, we're talking about, you know, I mean, Fukushima, 
you know, the, the spent fuel pool is potentially an extinction event, and it's still unfolding. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about all of civilization. Uh, we're talking about omnicide, um, and that's we can't focus on that. Uh, we have a, a bright day, uh, Solar Tokyo. We've got the renewables are here. Um, uh, the invisible hand of the market will show up. Um, so keep on keeping on any way you can. Scratch, uh, gnaw, um, uh, whatever it takes. Get the word out. Educate. Um, I've had the good fortune of uh, had uh, students uh, who have now become the masters. Uh, I work with uh, uh, Kevin Camps, who's with Don't Waste Michigan, and has been with Nears and, and now with Beyond Nuclear. Uh, Diane Dorigo, I've been working with her for 35 years, Paul for 35. So it's these people, these trust relationships that you know these people are going to be there when it comes down to deadline, and we work around the clock to make it happen. And we're, we're committed. We're prisoners of conscience. And uh, welcome aboard, uh, it, it, and it, it gives our lives meaning, great meaning, and uh, I'm just happy to be part of the, the show. And we learn from each other. Um, uh, another activist in Ohio taught me how to uh, sign up for a listserv, and so now I've been able to set up several groups. So um, whatever it takes, do it. Uh, uh, thank you. Thanks. What about you, Deb? What's your organizing style? Well, whatever works. <laughs> That's the organizing style. So close, in closing Vermont Yankee, we did an enormous amount of door-to-door town-to-town barnstorming events. We have found that using the Internet and emails and also Facebook is good for getting the word out about things. But it is the contacts that you make with people directly that have the most powerful effect in terms of engaging people and getting them involved. So in a certain way, it's a great tool, but it remains, in certain respects, really abstract. And for people to want to engage, for them to risk engaging, they have to feel that they have either something to gain or something to lose. And I don't think you get that from uh, cyberspace. Yeah. And Karen, you're you're in a situation right now where you're doing a combination of, you know, the face-to-face organizing and utilizing um, social media and, and certainly technology to advance your campaign. Absolutely, and it really takes all of that. And we're grateful, you know, for partners in that work. You know, I do believe strongly that the um, personal contacts are really important and being able to talk to somebody face-to-face, but then when you've got to really get people in motion fast, it's great to be able to have um, social media and Internet and emails. And we actually were able, um, in Texas, we did a comment period in 2017 where we got 16,000 comments in opposing the high-level radioactive waste in Texas. And that was even more than um, had been generated for Yucca Mountain, which we understand was about 13,000. The most for any individual issue at that point in time, as we understood it. Well, this past year, we've been working mostly in New Mexico while there was a brief reprieve on waste control specialists in Texas. Now they're back in play. 
and in New Mexico, we managed to get 25,000 comments in. And so it really, really helps. And all of the national organizations pitched in, uh, NEARS, Beyond Nuclear, Public Citizen, Food and Water Watch, and we're grateful to everybody. Um, but that connecting is really, really important. And um, we're going to continue doing that. And uh, like Deb and others, we're going to also be doing tours because we find that a lot of young people right now um, or those who haven't been exposed to this issue don't understand much about radioactive materials and about the health risks and the implications. If they haven't been impacted directly or threatened directly, they may be Uh unaware and they maybe were not around for Three Mile Island or too young to understand. Um, And some didn't get as much information as we might like about Fukushima. So we do a lot of educating. And once people get educated, they catch fire and they understand. And and many times they become very active themselves. So it's really important that we keep the the NEARS network strong and all of the um, related local organizations as well because together we're a pretty powerful force. Thank you, Karen. And yeah, I think <laughs> I think it's sometimes we forget when we get immersed in an issue um, that others around us don't know as much. Um, I remember when I was interviewing for Public Citizen, they I didn't realize it was to do specifically anti-nuclear work, and they asked me about you know what I knew about the, the building of these new reactors. And I, my response was, are they still building those? <laughs> so this was 10 years ago. Um, I still got the job, but I definitely um, was revealing that I absolutely had no idea about nuclear reactors. I didn't know that they were proposing to build more. Um, I hadn't thought about them um, since I, I probably marched against a dump when I was a young kid. So yeah, so it is important to, to remember um, you know, your audience and, and the people um, you know, just are not as aware and that, that we have to start there. So I'm going to um, stop talking um, and then we're going to open it up for Q&A and, and hopefully some other reflections from, from folks that have called in tonight. But I do want to, um, I want to close um, the call and so I want our presenters to be thinking about um, a story um, a reflection and experience that they had with a with a nearest former or current near staff member, and maybe we'll close up the call that way tonight. So be thinking about that, and we'll we'll circle back to that toward the end of the call. Um, but right now, Tim, why don't you go ahead and let folks know how they can ask a question or or share? Sure. Um, so thanks, Allison. I'm going to uh, turn us over into Q and A mode in just a second, and after that happens. Um, anybody who wants to ask a question, if you uh, if you press star uh, six on your phone, uh, you'll be put in the queue to ask a question. And uh, once uh, you know, and then, I'll, then I'll just go through people um, in order and um, and unmute you when you uh, when it's your turn. So let me just um, you know verify that um, that that's the process we're going to use, and uh, then I'll turn it back over to Allison in just a second. Great. Um, so yes, if, so if you want to ask a question, uh, just dial uh, star six on your phone, and then you'll go into the queue, and 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 uh, and I'll and I'll unmute you when it's your turn. 
Yeah, and again, we want to stress that you know if you don't have questions, um, that's fine. If you want to share your introduction to the anti-nuclear movement to help us kind of round out you know, some of the, the story and, and some of what has taken place over these four decades, please do feel free to share. Okay, great. Um, so we have the first, uh, the first question or comment is from someone with a 717 area code. Hi, this is Scott Portsline with Three Mile Island Alert from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hey, welcome. I wanted to reflect a little bit. I'm sorry. Uh, usually I prefer to go with question and answers, too, in this type of format, Tim and Allison. But uh, I wanted to say as an activist, one of the most difficult problems that I've faced was dealing with security issues, sabotage and terrorism of, terrorism of nuclear power plants, which I became interested in 1984 when I discovered that the uh, well, it was a personal discovery to me that the President's Commission had suspected sabotage was involved at Three Mile Island. So as a result, I did uh, about 40,000 pages of research at the National Archives, the NRC's public document rooms, and other public document rooms. So w w the point I'm getting to is trying to get the NRC to make security changes had been next to impossible until 2001, and then it became almost even more impossible at times. Uh, they, did, they did make some good changes. So the, the battle had to turn to the media in order to embarrass the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So what was very difficult was trying to convince media and readers and so forth that there was a serious problem without giving away the keys to the kingdom. And in mm -hmm. each case... And each case that I spoke with reporters and said to them, now, I'm going to tell you uh, two halves. You can only tell one half of the story, because if you tell both halves, then it's giving away too much information. And in every single case, the reporters honored that request. Another thing that I was able to do, and this is a result of talking with NEARS, uh, in 1996, I found out that no one was paying attention or doing any activism work on lost and stolen nuclear materials in the United States. So I began watching the reports from the daily event from the NRC and found that with a little bit of research, something was uh, being lost, stolen, or unaccounted for, orphaned is the term they use, every other day. And this is the first time you'll ever hear this. Over the next 10 years or so, I was able to generate dozens and dozens of articles in major newspapers across the United States when a nuclear material would go missing in their area. And I wouldn't get my name in it because I didn't want any blowback. And they didn't need my expertise. All they had to do was talk to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and then some of the other uh, professors and so forth at their local universities to find out just how dangerous these materials are. And then following the 9-11 uh, in October, I was on Dateline discussing uh, security changes that I had been requesting uh, that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission make. And a few years after that, the NRC actually 
shut down their website because of me, and I wasn't too proud of that. Some people would see that as a victory. No, no, no. We need their information, and uh, as Michael Keegan said, the, their information isn't necessarily knowledgeable, but we, de- we need to know what they're thinking, and we need to get our ducks in a row. Mm. And that was a result of, uh, you can still see it online today from CNN, a blueprint for terrorists where an individual from their home computer could locate very dangerous radioactive isotopes at their local university, hospitals, industries. Not only where the material, how much of the material was there, where it was located, which building, which room, which drawer, you know, it, it was all there. And then you could also, if you wanted to, figure out what type of security they did or did not have. So there's a lot of things that uh, went on behind the scenes regarding security without giving away the key to the kingdom. And I'm proud of that for uh, not saying too much. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, I, I, I don't know a ton about security, and I guess there's a reason for it, as you pointed out. But the other thing that strikes me is that this is like such a hallmark of the nuclear, anti-nuclear movement is that, you know, folks get interested in one piece of this and they become over a period of time experts in a particular element or particular part of the nuclear picture. Um, And they're on CNN and they're writing reports and they're, you know, creating havoc in the halls of the NRC. So you're one of those people and I know there's probably a ton more on the phone and and out there um, in our community that have um, become our our experts, our local experts, um, just for, you know, the sheer will of it. Um, So thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. Uh, Let me throw in, that's a great point and let me, this is Harvey. Um, um, and Scott, you may want to hang on for this. There was a woman at Three Mile Island that, that got nicknamed uh, Earthquake Dolly. Do you remember her? And she um, she specialized in the uh, at Three Mile Island at the possibility of um, of, a, of a potential earthquake. I believe someone can correct me if I'm wrong. And because of her, the unit the um, the containment dome at Unit Two was made much stronger than the other containment domes, and it's possible that that's why the whole thing didn't blow up um, on March 28, 1979. I think her name was Dolly Weinhold. I may be wrong about that, but if anyone... But that's, that's a testimony to the, um, to the power of specializing on particular yeah. aspects of a nuclear reactor. Absolutely. This she is can hear her. Go ahead, Karen. Okay. Um, I just want to say that we've learned that um, there's all different people that we work with in, in this effort, and they have all different skills and, and that they bring to bear and different artistic abilities or wherever mm-hmm. their skills lie. And we've learned that everybody matters. Mm-hmm. Um, out, out in West Texas, Diane was one of the ones to pick up on quickly that a woman in Sierra Blanca named Maria Mendez, she was always saying, look, there's not much I can do, but I pray a lot. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. we told her, that's great. 
you know, she was actually pretty effective on the microphone. It wasn't like she didn't have um, speaking skills. But in the meantime, she spent a lot of time praying. And in the end, we, uh, many people credit her with the earthquake that happened um, just at the right time, just before the hearings on Sierra Blanca. There was a, a strong earthquake in the West Texas region that rocked it entirely right where they were going to put the waste. And so we call that Maria Mendez's earthquake. But everybody well, has great. a part. And it was, it's really fascinating to see how people with out much skill and background can develop and grow, especially with a network in place. Mm-hmm. Okay, I hate to do this. This is Harvey again, but you, you really got me going here. There's a great oh. story I'll never forget. Um, in the, it was 90 or 91, uh, Yankee Row was hit by an earthquake. Uh, I'm sorry, by a lightning. And uh, Diane, uh, 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 Deb, you might remember this. And uh, it shut the reactor. And then, uh, a long story short, the, the, the people in Western Mass got together, and uh, um, Ivan Selin was being appointed uh, the, chair, the new chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And we conspired, and I went down and testified. I actually sat next to him in front of Peter Kastenmeier, a congressman from Pennsylvania, and challenged the congressman to uh, force the new NRC chair <clears throat> to not reopen Yankee Row until there was a test of the core to see it was, if it was embrittled. And Kastenmeier agreed, and he forced Selen to agree, and then the owners of Yankee Row were unable to do the uh, test, and they shut Yankee Row. And uh, many years later, I was uh, talking about this with Elizabeth Boardman, who was a great Quaker lady who helped train us at Seabrook. And she said that one day they had been driving around Western Mass, she and her Quaker friends, and they got kind of lost, and they pulled off to the, road, the side of the road and camped. And the next morning, uh, they, uh, they, noticed, they found that they were across the pond from Yankee Row, and she said they did a Quaker circle, and I'll never forget. She said, and you know, that night, that reactor was hit by lightning. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Any more power of prayer stories? <laughs> I wish that could be. Have we met our quota on that? I think. Actually, lightning struck both Yankee Row and Vermont Yankee that night, and knocked out the communication center at Row, so that Row couldn't communicate with the outside world. Mm. So it was actually the beginning of a process that Harvey's describing in which um, Roe went from one problem to the next, including embrittlement, which took it down. May I please ask a question? Please. Uh, This is Susanna Glidden in Westchester County, New York. We are extremely grateful to NEARS. I'm mostly a fractivist fighting fracking of natural gas and in specifically the AIM pipeline that's located immediately adjacent the Indian Point nuclear plant. And so we have had a wonderful experience learning from Tim Judson in such a comprehensive and clear way. And, of course, you're all familiar with this dreadful procedure underway of taxing ratepayers these dreadful, enormous billions of dollars of bailouts for plants that should be closed down. 
and it spread from New York State where it started to now New Jersey, Connecticut, and other states starting to do the same thing. I would so appreciate understanding if Tim is with us and can tell us about the lawsuit uh, against whom is it in New York State, the state itself, the uh, uh, who, who initiated that bailout, and how, what is the status of the lawsuit? Yeah, Tim, so that question is to you, and I should also say just to give even a little bit more context, um, Tim was kind of on the forefront of identifying that the bailout trend and put out a, a report. I think it was one of the first things that he did um, when he came on to NEARS um, was to raise the flag in the community that this was happening um, and try to get people um, engaged on it. So you know, with that, Tim, do you want to maybe talk a little bit more about that, kind of this new era of, era of fighting <laughs> nuclear plants, um, and then a little bit more about the lawsuit as well? Sure, Thank you. sure. Well, I mean, it's actually a fight that you know that has its roots going all the way back to uh, just the action camps that uh, that Deb and Michael Keegan talked about back in the late '90s. Um, but uh, you know, which is when I got involved in, in the anti-nuclear movement as a grassroots activist, um, you know, with CAN, and um, you know, and NEARS was actually the first organization that uh, that those of us who were getting concerned about the safety problems at one of our local nukes in Syracuse. Uh, contacted and really helped us, you know, get our bearings straight, um, you know, to, to begin organizing and and taking on the industry. Um, but the, you know, but sort of coming 20 years forward, um, you know, the the bailouts that are happening across the country, um, you know, uh, really have you know sort of taken root at the state level, and, and New York was the first one to actually uh, make this happen. And you know that was an initiative essentially, you know, started by Governor Cuomo. Um, you know, as a you know sort of you know really seemed to us it was sort of a political move um, to prevent you know a, a conservative upstate community from losing jobs you know uh, before the 2018 election, and uh, it turned into you know it, it turned from you know what seemed like a you know like a like a political ploy to start with into um, you know into this massive seven and a half billion dollar uh, bailout. Um, now, you know what was what's been what's been amazing about this story has been um, how grassroots activism has really turned the tide against the governor on this issue, and um, you know with you know between uh, the grassroots groups you know that are fighting the upstate reactors, including Alliance for a Green Economy, and the groups that are that have been organizing to shut Indian Point, um, Indian Point Safe Energy Coalition, and Hudson River Sloop Clearwater, and and all of those groups. Um, actually, you know, we've sort of united into uh, into a legal front, uh, suing the state government and the biggest nuclear corporations in the country, uh, Exelon and Entergy, um, to get you know to, to repeal this bailout and, um, and 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 to stop it dead in its tracks. So it's really can... a partnership between it's really a partnership between national and, and grassroots organizations that's you know that's uh, that's taking uh -huh. on the industry this way. And what's the status of the suit? So we won a, a sort of a, a big victory earlier this year by, um, you know, getting the court to rule um, that that the suit should move forward and, the, and that the suit shouldn't that, that, that the suit shouldn't be dismissed. And so we're in the process of going to court, and that should happen early next year. So we'll have a we'll have our day in court sometime in the next few months. 
Sounds like a good time to pray. (laughs) (laughs) And also a good time to donate some money to keep this lawsuit going. Yes. There you go. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, all of you. Yeah, thanks for joining the call. I am. Um, I have, you know, limited experience with with the with the beginning of the movement. But one thing did strike me when when the when the fracking anti fracking movement um, started to to really take hold, um, and many activists um, will eventually turn to FERC. They identified FERC as the agency um, where they needed to to stop things or where they could stop things, um, and that agency was not prepared for any sort of public engagement. Um, they don't have any to, to speak of. Um, understanding their processes is incredibly hard. Um, it felt very much like what activists in the early anti-nuclear movement were going through, like trying to figure out these processes and these agencies and how it works and, and trying to force them to interact with them. But FERC is still like this black box agency that will not interact. And so it seems like there's a lot of, um, a lot of things that the fracking community can learn from the anti-nuclear community. I think in terms of, you know, dealing with these agencies and learning these processes and learning how these things work. So should we go on to the next uh, the next question? Absolutely. Tim, how many people do we have queued up? Uh, we have about five more. Oh, fantastic. Uh, greetings. Uh, my name is Catherine Skopik. I'm calling from New York City. And I would like to thank all of you for the stories you have shared. It is so heartwarming and encouraging. We all need to hear these more and more. And I would like to thank Tim and Nears in particular, because Tim came to New York and helped us, us meaning several different uh, shutdown any point now groups. And he came many times, and we worked with uh, forming a resolution in the New York City Council to support the closure of uh, Indian Point. So uh, Tim did a lot of wonderful work with us, and I just have to thank him uh, and his knowledge and willingness to be there and to speak in different events has just been absolutely incredible. And I do have a question. It's uh, kind of a two-part question. Uh, as I go around uh, with different people, and I'm asked to speak from time to time, talking about uh, these issues, and my question is, uh, in, the, in the issue of decommissioning, and you can correct me, I'm asking you for your advice, but as far as I understand now, <clears throat> the, most, uh, the, the best way to deal with the waste is HOSS, hardened on-site storage and that there are, of course, different levels of quality of canisters, and this is an issue, should they be burned, and then what about venting, and if they're vented, doesn't radiation come out, you know, get into the atmosphere? So there are all different kinds of questions I have, so I need your advice uh, as to the best thing I can be telling people uh, as I go around talking to, you know, the average citizen on what they can do, because this problem, as you all know, with uh, all of these nuclear aging plants uh, wanting to get rid of the nuclear waste. So that's the first question I have. Give me advice on the best thing that I can share with people as to how they can support 
the best techniques for the best technique for uh, hardened on-site storage or uh, decommissioning. The second question I have is this: I was at a meeting of IPSEC on Sunday. That's Indian Point Safe Energy Coalition there in Westchester County, much closer to Indian Point than am I. I'm only about 40 miles away, um, <clears throat> and we received notice that there is an independent commercial group who is telling people that they will take their waste and dispose of it. And this is something that I think just came up recently. Uh, Marilyn Ely, who's been very active in this uh, up here, uh, had these letters uh, from these agencies that are saying this is like an independent private commercial company who is going to take the waste off the hands of the nuclear power plants and store it for them. And uh, the letter was very brief, so there was no detail, no information. And I'd like to know what your advice is about this or if you have any more knowledge than that. Well, this is Deb Katz. There's an old expression, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Right. And I think that what you're talking about is there are two corporations that are now attempting to take over the cleanup of nuclear reactors in America. One is called North Star, and the other is the Holtec Corporation that's been in the cast business but has not done decommissioning. Neither has had great experience in terms of dealing with decommissioning and nuclear waste, but what they are attempting to do is save merchant plants that, in fact, like Indian Point and others, were, who were, which were bought up and went from being utilities to being owned by private corporations that don't have the adequate funding to actually clean up the sites effectively and want to rid themselves of the responsibility for doing that or dealing with the high-level waste and are looking for, for them what amounts to a white knight that comes in and says they're going to clean the site up, they're going to do it cheap, but do a wonderful job, and you can imagine what cheap and wonderful do together. (laughs) And then what they want to do, and this is what gets states and it gets towns and everyone else, is they are going to be the white knight to get the high-level waste off-site really quickly. All of this is going to be a rapid decommissioning, and then they're going to move the waste off-site and make it disappear for communities. But that waste is then going to go to the southwest, either to western Texas, southwestern Texas, or to Holtec site in New Mexico. This is an unconscionable proposition. It's unacceptable, and it is basically a Ponzi scheme to rid the NRC of the problem, the NRC and the industry, the problem they've had for ages, which is they have no solution to the high-level waste. So now they want to set up parking lot dumps out in the southwest and make the waste disappear, and it's very hard for states and reactor communities to not fall prey to these ideas. One of the greatest problems is that the NRC has eviscerated most of the rules on the cleanup of decommissioning. We sued the NRC 
back in 1996 and won a lawsuit against them for basically violating their own regulations on decommissioning. After we won the lawsuit, the NRC changed their own regulations to make the inadequate cleanup of reactor sites basically lawful. So there isn't a lot that citizens can do in terms of trying to get them to do a better job. There is pressure that can be put on them to try to stop these, uh, these corporations from coming in and taking over decommissioning. They basically buy the reactor for $1,000. These are $420,000 reactors. They buy them for $1,000, and they swear they're going to clean them up. To clean them up, they have to limit cleanup in many, many ways to get it under the wire of the limited money they have. And the reason they have to limit it is because if the waste stayed on site, why they want to ship it out as quickly as possible, it would cost them $5 million a year just to babysit the waste at these sites. You talk about decades and decades of the waste staying on site, you're talking about potentially $100 million. At utilities at this point, like Roe, Basically, the ratepayers are eating the cost for watching the fuel. This is a compromised situation in which there are no easy answers, but parking lot dumps are unacceptable, and these are issues of morality and environmental racism. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you very much. The, uh, we, we were pretty familiar with both North Star and Haltech. This other company, Waste Central specialists LLC mm -hmm. we had not heard of before so um, they're uh, they are in Texas Dallas Texas so we yeah. hadn't heard of them before but uh, that that was kind of a new one that raised its head but Holtec yeah. also as I understand and correct me if I'm wrong makes a canister that's very flimsy and not very uh, good that doesn't last very long <clears throat> for on-site storage so what company does make the uh, like I know Germany has uh, <clears throat> storage casks, hardened storage casks that are very workable and last a long time. So what's that company uh, where uh, we could recommend uh, canisters that are actually going to work? So, Karen, I don't know if you wanted to say something about yeah. WCS, but then I also want to encourage um, maybe taking this conversation offline. There's a lot of folks that we can connect with to, to give you some, some better information and advice. Um, I also want to put a pin in um, Haas, which, which you raised as well. I think maybe right. some folks might want to have a few words about that. And then I also just lastly, Karen, before I turn it over to you, I want to say there's also resources in other host communities that have um, and instead of deciding they, they want to get the waste out of their communities as quick as possible, are kind of in solidarity with folks that have been um, identified as potential dump sites and said, no, we're not going to have anybody else take our waste either. I mean, they have some principles and, and some, and some you know, concepts around that as well. Um, so with that, Karen, I'll turn that over to you to talk to WCS, and then maybe we'll take it offline. But I also want to hear what people have to say about Haas. And that was Thank great. you. Great comment, Allison, because yes, there has been solidarity around this. Um, and waste control specialist is the same as WCS. 
they're partnering with what is now called Orano, which used to be Arriva, and they and the French company um, Orano actually um, now has a controlling interest in the group. But WCS is part of North Star. They are trying to buy up reactors. I think it's about who holds title to the waste is a large part of that. And, of course, they're trying to bring that waste to Texas. So we welcome having the doors open and the information exchange so everybody knows what's happening um, in different parts of the country on that front. And I wanted to say one other thing, too, that, you know, you can take it from one area and it appears, you know, that that area is cleaned up. But it's scary to think that they're calling these green fields and, and it's scary to think of what kind of development they're might be considering suitable for land that used to have nuclear waste and a, and a reactor. Um, and when you take it to Texas and New Mexico, you're very close to the Ogallala Aquifer that goes under eight states. So, you know, there's no getting away from the problems. They need to do a better job at the start. Thank you, Karen. Does, does anyone want to say a word about Haas? Hardened on-site storage. storage. It was a concept that came up at a, at a summit that Ken organized in, I don't even remember anymore. But it is a, the idea that given this, this struggle over citing um, interim storage, which we see as unacceptable, that for reactor communities to be able to accept the notion of the high-level waste staying on site, which is very hard for them to do in the interim while a scientifically sound and environmentally just solution is found, the idea of Haas came up, which was the notion of double-walling the casks, of actually having greater distance between the casks, <coughs> protecting them with berming, potentially covering them over rather than having them out in basically with a sign on them that says, you know, uh, attack me, which we're very concerned about in terms of acts of malice. And we had attempted to get interest in Haas to happen, and there were congressmen actually in the Midwest who were interested in it, and we got the National Academy of Science to do a study which advocated for the fuel coming out of fuel pools and being put into a more robust storage. And basically, the NRC refused to act on the National Academy of Sciences recommendations. And that's where we sit today on it. <clears throat> Deb, do you remember how many, people, how many uh, groups signed on to it? Oh, I, there were a lot. There, yeah, there was like over 100. Yeah. Yes. And we did it and we got that study done and there was interest from Republican congressmen because they wanted to bring cask manufacturing to their communities in the Midwest. But the NRC basically engaged with the industry in a public relations campaign to say that it was all safe and there was nothing to worry about because they didn't want the industry to have to deal with the reality, not just of the cost, but of the problem. I was, we were actually in suing Yankee Atomic in Connecticut over the cleanup, Connecticut Yankee over the cleanup of Connecticut Yankee, and we were with their lawyer. And 
it was right after 9-11. I was talking about to them about what they were going to do about the high-level waste on the site and how were they going to per- protect it. And uh, their lawyer, Bob Gadd, said to me, when you have a problem and you don't have a solution, then you don't have a problem. <laughs> yeah. And that I should point out... Our stance and the industry's stance ever since. Go ahead, Harvey. Very quickly, there's just been an incident. I don't know how many people have heard about it, but apparently uh, they were moving uh, some high-level waste at, um, or some, some kind of waste at San Onofre, and there was uh, uh, two operator errors, and uh, this waste was uh, suspended in the air uh, for a period of time. It only became public knowledge when a whistleblower came out at a public forum, and uh, this whistleblower, of course, now expects to be fired. It was on NPR, so... You know the games with nuclear waste continue. Yeah, and just because we need to move on to other folks, but I, and not to believe her, but I did want to just point out one one other thing about Haas. Um, one of the things that we're often criticized for in this community is that we know everything. <laughs> we say no to everything. This is actually a a document that was built by consensus and vetted by our best guys like Argen Argen Macchiani for its viability. Um, and it says we do have an actual answer to the question of what to do with the waste right now. And so it's a very proactive um, document and set of principles. And it, you know, it, it definitely is worth um, having at your fingertips whenever you're asked, then what? What should we do? So with that, let's go on to the next question. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, this is Lee Evans of New Canaan, Connecticut. Um, we, too, are not far from the Indian Point nuclear reactors and very concerned about them. And I wondered if maybe uh, Tim could talk about how we make sure that uh, Cuomo has said he will close them, but how can we make sure that they get closed down? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the you know the Cuomo seems intent on on making that happen, and that's a real credit to to all the organizing that's been happening for the last twenty years around Indian Point. Um, right. I think actually one one of the biggest one of the biggest questions right now is um, whether the Trump administration is going to is going to scuttle that, and um, you know we're preparing for the for the for the Trump administration to issue an executive order, you know, in the next few months potentially. Uh, to create a, a you know a nationwide bailout for nuclear power and coal that would um, you know essentially declare a state of you know falsely and certainly declare a state of national emergency around the closures of nuclear and coal plants and would put a moratorium on any further reactor closures for at least a couple of years. So that's uh, you know something that's um, that, that that that's that's worth keeping an eye out for. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah, I've 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 read some about that. Uh Hello. I, so we have to do heavy here. lobbying, yeah. right, against that. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna need to mobilize across the country to stop this dirty energy bailout. Absolutely. Okay. I thought uh, someone was trying to jump in. Go ahead. Okay. I'm uh, Michael Keegan here. Um I just sent out a, a document on Indian Point. Um, they have a license amendment request to be able to restructure their decommissioning trust fund. And that's what Holtec, that's what Northstar, that's what 
these folks are interested in is the trust fund. This is a big cash cow. Um, so uh, they, are, they are looking to be able to tap that uh, trust, that decommissioned trust fund to deal with uh, the high-level nuclear waste. So this is all about a, a cash cow. Um, but uh, a document, uh, a license amendment request, which means there will be an opportunity for a hearing to, to pull this out, to tease it out. So I circulated that to Tim and to Richard Webster and about eight other folks, so hopefully they'll see that. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Do we have another question from the line? Yeah, this is another uh, person without a caller ID. Okay. Hi there, Michelle Lee. Um, I just want to uh, sort of Allison's comment about uh, not knowing you're still building nuclear reactors 10 years ago just reminded me um, of my beginning in this, this realm, which was on 9-11. And, and, of course, Indian Point uh, is very near New York City, and, and afterwards articles started coming out about Indian Point and the risk and so forth, and that's how I got involved. But at the time, I didn't even know there were still nuclear reactors, like, around. I thought they were all, <laughs> all gone. It was over. I didn't really pay much attention to it. And I certainly had no idea that there was a reactor in New York um, you know, about, about 17 miles from my home. So, so that was an awakening. Um, I did, I'm, I'm going to just zip through a bunch of bullet points, just notes I was taking as I was listening. Um, I, I, I have to say... It, NEARS, um, as, as I'm sure many folks are aware, but for those who aren't, was absolutely instrumental in, in, in all the advancements we made in you know, pressuring New York State to go into to, you know, opposing the license, relicensing of Indian Point um, and, and in helping effectuate the, the uh, agreement, the settlement agreement to close it. Of course, now we are under a little bit of a, you know, crossing our fingers with, with Trump. But meanwhile, the plan still is for it to, to close. Um, one thing that I think is really important, and, and just, I'm just focusing on things that haven't been really mentioned, is the, the force of credibility NIRS has brought um, for those of us who go and meet with mm -hmm. public officials and, and frankly can just cite it or give a document or handouts uh, for people to the website, it, 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 it's absolutely crucial because none of us can be experts on absolutely everything. And a, a very vital role NEARS plays is that it's, it's a full panoramic um, group for expertise. And um, there are other groups, certainly, that, that focus on nuclear issues here and there, but very, very, very few um, that, that focus on the whole picture. And, and it, you know, I can't imagine what, what our, uh, the activist community would be, you know, without NEARS. It, it would just collapse. Um, another great thing is, is I, I do lectures in college and high school science classes, and I can refer people, students to, to the website, you know, which has obvious heft and credibility. Um, and I mean, the final point I really want to make, which has been talked about, but it's so important, is it, the community. It's a sense of community 
you know, all of, we're all spread all over the country, the activists, some people are working communities with very, very few uh, people who have knowledge or, or, you know, really care much about, about these issues. And NEARS provides such an important role in bringing us all together sort of as mm -hmm. one so we can mobilize and feel like, you know, and be an effective force. And, and, then, and then I'm done. I wish you had asked, or had your comments at like 9.28 because that would have been the perfect way to end the call. <laughs> it was really just really nice summary and, and, and thank you so much for, for raising some of those things that, that we haven't really teased out yet. I appreciate that, Michelle. Um, Tim, do we have other, other folks on the line? Are there any more questions from the line? Hi. This Hi. is Chris Williams. Hi, Chris. And I'm honored to be the, uh, <laughs> the board chair of, uh, of NEARS. And uh, I'm calling from, uh, from Vermont. And earlier in the call, much earlier in the call, there was discussion regarding face-to-face uh, um, -face communication. And I have to say... Um, Face-to-face -face communication has been my uh, entire experience with regard to uh, opposing nuclear power. I started out, and I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but I started out uh, knocking on doors for the New York Public Interest Research Group in 1978 opposing the Shoreham Nuclear Power Plant. I worked for years and, uh, and built and... Uh, sustained door-to-door -door canvas operations around the country, many of them opposing nuclear power plants. And now in my old age, I have to say I'm a bit frustrated that that part of uh, uh, the way we oppose nuclear power has fallen off drastically. And there are a lot of reasons why, but I believe that we, uh, we have to sit down at this point in time and figure out uh, a way uh, to reinvigorate door-to-door -door activism with regard to uh, anti-nuclear activities. And, you know, the, the most important part is, you know, not necessarily all of those people that you reach and all those people that you educate. The most important part for me of the door-to-door -door activism is the way it educates and activates young people and gets them involved in the movement. And mm. I'm sitting here in Vermont telling you at 65 years old, that's how I got into it. And I could rattle off a litany of uh, power plants that we shut down, opposed, um, and made a lot of trouble for. And, by the way, the way that I believe you do that most effectively is attacking their money through the rate base. But I'm not going to go into all that. I, I think at this point we need to, uh, to really sit down and figure out a way for our movement to, uh, to reinvigorate door-to-door -door activism uh, for our cause. Uh, there are a lot of issues that uh, people have used, uh, we'll call it canvassing for, um, and canvassing has, uh, in, this, in this country, has, has really withered, and uh, there's, no, there's no reason that uh, 
that that should happen. It's uh, it's not a good thing, and the basics are are still there. Everything in, uh, that we need to uh, to make it happen is still there, but we need to uh, to sit down and come up with a plan to uh, to reinvigorate it and reinvigorate it uh, for the anti-nuclear movement because. As far as I can see, there aren't a whole lot of other people uh, or organizations or um, uh, issues that are uh, employing it, and um, I'm, a, I'm a cranky old guy now, but uh, there's no better way than uh, to go out and bang on doors and look in people's eyes and uh, tell them what you know and ask for their support. So I'll just leave it there. Thank you, Chris. I, you know, I, I think that you're right. I don't think there's any substitute for it. There just can't be. Um, so thank you for that, that reflection and putting a finer point on that. Tim, do we have any last questions? Because I do want to close out with a couple of things, and we are getting at time. Okay, hearing none, and being just a few minutes to 9.30 here on the East Coast, the closing time for our call, um, I do have some announcements. Um, let me just see here. So tonight's call um, is the first in a series of celebrations of the work that NEARS and the grassroots movement um, have done since 1978. There's going to be another telebriefing on Thursday, November 15th. It's going to be with NEARS staff, and they're going to debrief the midterm elections and tell stories from the victories and challenges NEARS has had with major campaigns over the years and preview the work ahead. Um, in addition to that, um, can't mark your calendars, but keep it in mind. Um, there's also going to be a larger celebration party organized for the end of November, and more information about that will be um, coming shortly. Um, I also want to remind folks that tonight's call was recorded, and so you'll receive a follow-up email with the recording of tonight's call, and also the information I just went over, and also encouraging people, um, if you can, and, and in what way that you can, donate and, so, and continue to donate and support NEARS. Um, so in just the last few minutes here, um, one of the things that I said earlier was I was going to ask our presenters if they wanted to share or had some sort of story or anecdote that they wanted to share about a former or current staff member um, at NEARS. So does anyone want to step up with that? It can be funny, it can be silly, it can be heartwarming, any of those things. Well, I'll tell one about Michael Marriott. Um, Wonderful. Um, I, knew, I knew Michael and um, uh, from the beginning, and uh, I always thought he was kind of a straight-laced, nerdy kind of guy, and we, I had <laughs> meetings with him forever and ever. And then when I was hired by Greenpeace in 1990, I went to a Grateful Dead concert, and there was Michael just in total tie-dye, dancing his brains out in the, in the pouring rain. I will never forget that. And, of course, we all miss Michael tremendously and want to really um, uh, honor his contributions to this movement. Thank you for that. And you must have known or learned there shortly after that he was um, in a punk rock group as well. <laughs> as yeah, a drummer. I, I learned that later, yeah. 
<laughs> you just never know. <laughs> That's right. The depth of uh, our nuclear movement, all the, the quirks and interests. Um, well, we're at, we're at 9.30, so I think, folks, we're going to leave it there. Um, thanks again for being on the call with us tonight and spending this hour and a half and for our presenters and um, for being here and sharing your stories and all the work that you do. And we're going to continue this celebration of 40 years um, into next month and beyond. Um, thanks, everybody. Have a great night. You thanks, too. Thank you. you. No news. Well, thank you all.